Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. I want to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Because our university is built upon their ancestral lands, we like to think that sharing our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices is one way of paying respect to the knowledge embedded within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Which brings me to why we're here for the second of our panels this semester in the series The Thinker's Guide to the 21st Century, which I dreamed up as a way of sharing our knowledge, teaching, learning practices. So my name is Professor Glenda Sluger. I run the Laureate Research Program in International History, and my aim in putting uh, together this series was to connect the research we do here in the Faculty of Arts and uh, Humanities and Social Sciences and elsewhere in Australia, because I invite people along, to have us think about how our research connects with the questions that all of us are asking, I think, about our present world and the existential challenges that seem to be taking place globally. That's how it feels, at least, I think. So I, I do study international history, and I wanted to take an international and a global view of our place in the world and the problems that we face. So thanks to Meredith Hall and Sydney Ideas for helping me to put up this series. And tonight we're going to focus on feminism in the age of populism. And this is a seminar that's, t- or a panel that's taking place in conjunction with University College London. We're not streaming live to there or anything, and they're not watching us right now. But one of our panellists, Dr Philippa Hetherington, who uh, works there, will be continuing our discussion here on a sister panel as part of a series there at uh, University College at the Institute for Advanced Studies in London and focused on feminism. So she's going to take whatever we talk about here and... Uh, pass it on there, and then we'll come back and hear what happens in London as well. I think it's no coincidence that so much of what is happening in what seems like a new era in politics has to do with women, often wearing strange knitted pink hats with ears and marching in large groups. And of course I'm thinking of the Washington march that took place the day after the inauguration of President Trump in January this year. And if ever there was a juxtaposition of feminism and populism, I think that was it. On the one side, it felt like you had a president who was not shying away from attacking women's reproductive rights or their reproductive organs. And on the other, generations of women who assembled and caught the attention of feminists globally in order to assert their voice and their presence and demand those rights and others, including the right not to be attacked. And so some wonderful evocations arose out of that event, images and stories of empowerment, many that were very specific to the contingencies of American women. And a friend of mine who was there witnessing wrote a piece in the London Review of Books on what it was like being there. And I just um, went and had a read of it again the other day and uh, I took out a little section. And she said, it is Trump's character, his crassness, his vindictiveness, his grotesque penis-waving narcissism that got under women's skin like nothing else is done. He wouldn't be president if he grabbed men's crotches, one sign proclaimed. Huge protest. Millions of nasty women mocked another. We want a leader, not a creepy tweeter, women chanted. 
or to hit the nail on the head, you're orange, you're gross, you lost the popular vote. (laughs) But she also noted, it is this revulsion against the person of Trump that bears watching and that, if we are honest with ourselves, divides us. Remember that 53% of white women voted for him. So there isn't one block of women or one kind of feminism. And it seems to me that the march was also evocative of more than the challenges of the immediate moment. In for historians, it was evocative of the countless women's marches that have taken place over the last 200 years, if you're a modern historian, and I'm sure there are others. Um, and it did beg the question, I think, for a lot of people, uh, you know, where, where does one go from there? What kind of politics do you pursue uh, in the context of these kinds of um, mobilisations of, of feminist intent, if you like, that have sprung up in the context of uh, a populist politics. And it also leads us to think about whether or not the problem for feminism is only one of populism. If we decided to define populism these days broadly to, to be a kind of rejection of the elite and a, a rejection of the establishment. So my friend Susan remembered that one protest sign read, feminism is the radical idea that women are human beings. And she argued that it was not only populists that had a problem with this idea. And then, of course, to muddy the waters a little bit more, if you asked our own homegrown populists last week what they stood for, they would have answered the emancipation of women from oppression. And we need only think about the scene of um, Pauline Hanson in a burqa in the Senate when she called on feminists to join her. She said that she was standing up for women who were being forced to wear the burqa against their will. And she was backed up by Senator Malcolm Roberts, better known as a climate denier and now defender of women's rights. And he said, it's the Islamic ideology that's the problem and what the burqa does to women. We have a woman with courage standing up for women, he said. I think it's offensive to put women down, he said. And in Australia, with our set of values, people are seeing this, the burqa, as an affront to women, homosexuals, an affront to Australian values. For historians, these kinds of uses of women's oppression echo in familiar ways as well. So feminist historians have been writing for a while now about uh, what they call imperial feminism, about a period of British imperial history, for example, where uh, British women often took up the cause of the emancipation of non-Western women, and they did it from the perspective of the superiority of of their British uh, and sometimes Western white culture, even while they themselves had limited rights. And of course, the idea that the West is liberating local women has long been used as an argument for military intervention. And one of the problems this has led to is that Western women have assumed leadership of global feminism, making it less global than Western. And that has been one of the criticisms in the past. So again, there's no one feminism, it seems. And I'm going to ask our panellists more about that in a minute. To what extent we are witnessing a new global feminism in response to a worldwide wave of populism. And now that populism, as we can see already from the Australian and American examples, extends across many parts of the world. And I'll just mention a few of the European cases I know best, and specifically anti-feminist populism that is on the rise in three of the major populist parties in Europe at the moment. There's the Front National in France, led by a woman, and increasingly mainstream, and which aims to fight against Islam and to save women from Islam. There's the German alternative Alternative for uh, Deutschland, or the Alternative for, for Germany, also led by a woman, the AfD. 
and it's the most anti-feminist of all, with ambitions of protecting the nuclear family, ending gender mainstreaming and terminating the promotion of gender research, amongst other things. And in the 24th of September elections, it will be running candidates um, at a federal level. And then the Dutch uh, PVV, or the Party of Freedom, the second largest party in the House of Reps in the Netherlands, with 13%, and 45% of um, the supporters of which are women. For the PVV, Islam is the focus and depicted as a cultural threat because it is anti-feminist, holds to forced marriages um, and the representation and the concentration is on this idea of the isolation of women, genital mutilation and honour-based violence as an Islamic, um, a purely Islamic uh, characteristic. But uh, of course at the same time the party isn't really interested in any Western manifestations of violence against women. There are other examples, and we'll go through some of them at the next panel, which is on authoritarianism, but we'll hear more about what's happening in Egypt on that panel, for example, and uh, the place of women and feminism there. But on this panel, each of our speakers is a scholar engaged in understanding the ways in which women and women's bodies are a battleground of institutional, local, national and global political cultures. And they're also scholars that press for the importance of a feminist scholarship as well as practice. So our first speaker, I'll introduce them and then I'll uh, be asking each of them a question and allowing them some time to talk about their work and um, uh, what it tells us about the present situation. And then we'll continue a, a general conversation and then open up to questions at about seven. So first I'll introduce them to you. Laura J. Shepherd is an Associate Professor of International Relations at UNSW and was recently awarded a prestigious ARC Future Fellowship for her work on gender politics. And Laura's just there in the middle. Um, Laura is also a visiting senior fellow at the LSE Centre for Women, Peace and Security in London. And she's written about the United Nations Security Council's Women, Peace and Security Agenda. She's particularly interested in post-structural accounts of gender and security, and much of her work investigates concepts and performances of authority, legitimacy and power through these theoretical frameworks. She has strong interests in pedagogy and popular culture and is currently uh, working on projects on women and peace in Africa and reimagining and decolonising post-conflict peace building. Just here on my left, Dr Philippa Hedrington works with me and others at the Laureate Research Program and is an alumna of, our post, uh, of the postdoctoral program there as well as Sydney Uni. She's currently a lecturer in modern Eura Eurasian history at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London. She researches and teaches the cultural, social and legal history of Imperial Russia and the early Soviet Union. She's currently writing a book about the traffic of women in Imperial Russia, including the social and legal history of prostitution in Moscow and St. Petersburg since 1600, and the gender dynamics of the Russian refugee crisis. And she's leading a, uh, a large research project with Sydney and UCL on trafficking, smuggling and illicit migration in gendered and historical perspectives, 1870 to 2000. And I just have to mention that this year, Philippa won a British Academy Rising Star Engagement Award for her work on um, Russian global legal history. Anna Hush, uh, at the end there, is a current honours student in philosophy. Some of you will know her. Uh, she's a, a, vi a vital presence around campus. Uh, she's writing her thesis on identity politics and political co coalitions within feminism. 
Anna has been a vocal advocate for feminist issues affecting young people, particularly around sexual assault and gendered violence. She's an ambassador for End Rape on Campus Australia, a national ad advocacy organisation that works to support survivors of sexual assault and lobbies for better policies, practices and services at Australian universities. So last year, Anna was the Women's Officer at the University of Sydney um, for the Students' Representative Council, and she led a campaign to bring light to sexual violence and harassment within the university community, which, in fact, she was very successful in doing. She is a co-founder and director of FemPower, a not-for-profit organisation that provides workshops on feminism, gender and consent to high school students in New South Wales and Victoria, and she's a board member of Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia. So uh, a very diverse uh, panel, and um, we're ready to get started. Thank you for uh, your for attention and my long introduction. Anyway, so Laura, your work is focused on the global dimensions of gender politics. Working on the UN uh, has long been associated, uh, an organisation that's been associated with the rise of a global feminism, a specific kind of global feminism. Uh, particularly through its conferences, etc. But is there something new going on now, do you think, in the context of the, uh, the idea of global feminism that's arisen in response to the rise of populism? Thanks, Glenda. Um, I'm really glad to be here this evening. Thank you for inviting me. I too would like to acknowledge the owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, I'm really glad that you said what you said about the rise of a particular kind of feminism. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about as I prepared my comments for this evening was the extent to which feminism and populism itself as kind of organising concepts for our discussion this evening require some complexification, require some uh, problematising. And the guiding question that um, I suppose animates the comments that I've prepared speaks to some of the themes that Glenda um, raised in her introduction, specifically around the question of what feminism might be in an era of populism. Um, what we might learn from feminism, perhaps to um, either to comfort ourselves or to uh, at least focus our understandable rage in productive and useful directions um, as we witness the kind of ongoing... Um, contestations around legitimacy and authority in the US government in particular, but not exclusively. Um, the question of what we might dare to dream about in terms of political organisation and mobilisation in the contemporary world. So in the process of preparing these comments, um, one of the things that I began to think about was the extent to which feminism has historically been somewhat exclusionary. Um, and this is perhaps a, an unusual place to start. Um, but I feel like it's important to acknowledge the fact that feminism has not, certainly not always been a popular movement, it's not always been a populist movement, and it hasn't always been uh, an inclusive movement. So it's been argued, obviously, that feminism as a social movement relies on the kind of coherence of a, of a female subject uh, on whose behalf to claim rights. But black feminists have challenged this narrative for decades on the basis of their exclusion from white feminist politics. And one of the um, most salient political dynamics 
to my mind at the moment, is the dynamic of race and whiteness that is animating US politics. And I think a feminist politics in an era of populism has a responsibility to address whiteness specifically, to understand that... In some senses, the global feminist movement, particularly that associated with the UN and, another, and other kind of elite centres of power, um, is a feminism of specifically white women putting the needs and interests of specifically white women first. Um, and if we look at the election of Trump in the, in the USA, we can see that this trend continues. And Glenda mentioned in her opening comments that um, Trump won 53% of the votes uh, among white women over Clinton. Um, I think it's understandable that in the aftermath of, the vote, of this vote, black feminists were outraged at white women's voting behaviour. Um, the recent events in Charlottesville, um, the arrest of a young black woman um, who was um, engaged in peaceful protest and the failure to arrest the young men who beat up the Andre Harris, um, many of you will have seen the videos and the media coverage of this, suggests that the future of feminism in a populist era needs to take race seriously. We need to take whiteness seriously and acknowledge the privilege that often accrues to white bodies. Um, as Kimberly Crenshaw, who developed the concept of intersectionality, has suggested, the failure of feminism to interrogate race means that the resistance strategies of feminism will often replicate and reinforce the subordination of people of colour. And the failure of anti-racism to interrogate patriarchy means that anti-racism will frequently reproduce the subordination of women. So I'd suggest that we can only avoid these unwanted outcomes if we recognise that we speak from situated perspectives and that we have a responsibility to ensure that we use our platforms and the privilege that accrues to white bodies, in my case, to call attention to the gendered and racialised forms of injustice and exclusion that so often characterise populist politics. To paraphrase a popular internet meme on this subject, my feminism in an age of populism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit. Given that the currents of contemporary political discourse, we urgently need to consider what feminism might look like in a populist era because we know that women's rights do not fare well during periods of political uncertainty. A shift to the right of the political spectrum and the increasing normalization of small-c conservative political views tend to go hand in hand with the retrenchment of women's rights and the curtailment of their bodily autonomy. We also know that conservative political leaders who rely on racism and sexism to shore up their authority, let alone those who openly boast in candid conversation of grabbing women's bodies without their consent, create a political environment in which women as individuals are not respected and their feminine attributes are devalued. The populism at issue here is definitely, as Wikipedia would have it, a politics of the common man. Just today, my Twitter timeline uh, was filled with pictures of Afghan women in miniskirts. Many of you probably have seen this coverage. Pictures from the 1970s that were purportedly shown to President Trump to demonstrate that there's a culture and a people worth saving in Afghanistan. There is so much wrong here, I cannot begin to unpack it. <laughs> I firmly believe that in order to bring about political change, we need to hold on to hope of doing better of thinking and knowing better, and to recognise that this might mean thinking and knowing differently. In my own work, 
Much of it focuses on the UN's women, peace and security agenda. Now, this is a series of eight United Nations Security Council resolutions that bring a gender perspective to peace and security, focusing on the protection of women's rights and bodies, the prevention of violence, including but importantly not limited to conflict-related sexual violence, and the participation of women in all forms of peace and security governance. The reason that I look to the Women, Peace and Security agenda for hope in this contested era is because it is by definition not an elite political project. While it has an institutional home within the architecture of the Security Council, it's a political project that was mobilised for and has been nurtured by women's peace organisations from across the world. And those who work in this space have deftly demonstrated the danger in assuming that peace and security knowledge is produced only by peace and security elites. They have sought to define the peace and security expert, arguing that women who live and work and thrive in conflict and conflict-affected states deserve a voice and a seat at the table in peace and security governance. They have shown that we need to pay attention to the emergence of different kinds of political actors and to take seriously the everyday politics of peace and security that these women mobilise around. This is potentially a different kind of populism, one that subverts the boundary between everyday people and elites in different ways. The continuing quest to realise women's rights and their full and meaningful participation in peace and security governance is further embattled in this age of populism. In the context of such diverse and various societal fissures, fractures and failings, I suggest that now more than ever, women's peace activists and human rights activists deserve recognition as legitimate knowers in and of world politics, as experts in the lives that they live. The violations of women's rights and bodies made possible by the steady erosion of those preventative and protective measures applicable to those rights and bodies will be felt most keenly by the women and their allies working in and through the spaces that are frequently invisible to conventional studies of peace and security. These are the ordinary people whose voices and concerns should be heard. This is the populace whose everyday politics should inform our thinking and our activism. These are the peace and security experts. I suggest we should pay heed. These are uncertain, precarious and dangerous times for so many people. And we cannot think of change if we do not change our thinking. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. Can I just ask you a, follow, a quick follow-up mm. question? I mean, I think sometimes, uh, you know, in this space of global feminism that is uh, now being spoken about much more uh, commonly, um, there's a sense in which it might just be the, you know, the sum of the different feminisms in different countries. But you're actually talking about a, a, a movement, if you like, or a, a conversation that occurs in different kinds of spaces. So to what extent is the UN or are there other kinds of global spaces in which these opportunities for articulating some uh, a global feminist politics are taking place? Um, I would be wary of looking to the UN in this, as in most things. Um, I'm very fond of the UN. I feel I should defend it now. I'll shut up. Um, <laughs> 
for me, I wouldn't look to UN-sponsored activism in this space as a, as a mode of connection, although it does serve a valuable function. And UN Women has country offices that provide capacity building and enabling mechanisms for local women's activists that are incredibly valuable. Um, but I suppose I am something of a traditionalist, and I would look rather to the existing women's peace movement infrastructure. I think the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom... Um, offers such an amazing connective opportunity for local women's activism. Um, and one of the projects, or one component of one of the projects that I'm working on at the moment, looks to understand how we can better facilitate lateral connections between women's peace organizations, um, both kind of regionally um, and also globally. My concern is what happens, or what tends to happen, is that connections are forged through essentially through sites of power in the global north. So um, groups will come to Geneva where they will forge connections but then go back uh, to their local contacts and those connections will fall away. Or they'll come to New York for the annual celebration of Resolution 1325, but those connections won't be fostered and sustained. What I think is important is to find a way to um, foster and enable those connections laterally, not through New York or through Geneva necessarily, but in a way that allows women to speak to other women who have similar experiences across national contexts. Um, that's where I think possibilities can be found. Oh, interesting. Okay, great. So now, in fact, we're going to look at one of those national contexts, or imperial, or however you want to think about it. I just want to remind people that the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom turns 100 in two years. Yeah, so it's been around for a while. Okay, so Philippa, can you take us into the Russian context? Um, <clears throat> sure. <laughs> I will, I will, I will uh, definitely try to. Can everyone hear me? Is my mic close enough? Yeah. Um, I'd just like to say thank you very much to Glenda um, for inviting me and to Sydney Ideas. And I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land uh, on which we meet, the Gadigal people. Um, so in preparing my comments uh, for this evening, uh, as Glenda has already mentioned, I'm a, a well a Russian historian, uh, essentially. I work on Imperial and Soviet Russia. Uh, so I was thinking about them through, in part through that prism, uh, but I was also thinking about uh, this evening's discussion in the context of a, the large number of sort of commentaries and public opinion pieces and maybe tweet storms that I saw in the wake of uh, the election um, of Donald Trump, especially about how the problem with uh, the contemporary left, so to speak, was that it had been captured by identity politics and was talking too much about gender and race and not enough about class uh, and economic inequality. And one of the things that kind of disturbed me about some of these uh, discussions and some of these pieces was that they seemed to set up this kind of binary opposition between, on the one hand, we can talk about gender and race, or on the end, on the other hand, we can talk about class and economic inequality, but somehow, you know, it's almost impossible to talk about them together. Um, and as a historian, one of the problems I had with that was that, of course, historically, we have all sorts of examples uh, where people have precisely attempted to think uh, through uh, those categories together, to think through gendered, racial, and economic oppression um, as uh, intersecting um, uh, categories. Of course, um, Laura has already brought up Kimberly Crenshaw's uh, famous uh, discussions of intersectionality, which talk a lot about uh, the intersectionality of gender and race. Um, but we also, of course, have an, a number of um, examples of uh, attempts to think through the intersectionality of gender, race, and class. And um, 
Arguably, although in complicated and sometimes controversial ways, uh, the Soviet Union uh, and its idea of gender politics was just such an attempt uh, to do this. So I sort of started thinking about, you know, the tradition of uh, also socialist feminism, uh, attempts in the socialist world over the course of the 20th century to think gender and class oppression together, uh, and the kinds of failures of those projects, and what, if anything, uh, we can learn in this age of, uh, age of populism about how to talk about uh, gender and class as intersecting um, categories or intersecting sort of forms of structural oppression. Um, and then as I was thinking about this and as I was actually thinking about my comments for this evening, just last week uh, there was an op-ed that came out in the New York Times or sort of a, a column um, by a, a historical anthropologist uh, called Kristen Godsey who's now a professor at uh, University of Pennsylvania in the US. Um, and it was entitled Why Women Had Better Sex Under Socialism. And in this, and it got, there were lots of angry comments uh, in, the <laughs> in the comments, people contesting that. Um, and Anyway, it had a very obviously flashy and provocative title, but essentially what Godsey's argument in this is, um, uh, sorry, was, was that um, under socialism in the Soviet Union or Bulgaria, which is her own uh, area of specialization, because, first of all, because the state had these um, programs of top-down, state-supported, um, essentially gender emancipation projects, so enforced emancipation um, from above through literacy programs, full employment for women, uh, um, reforms of marriage and divorce laws, that kind of thing. So that on the one hand, but also, and I think what's actually more her point, because there was an effort to combat economic uh, inequality in these cultures, this is not to say that they were actually uh, completely economically equal at all, but part of the official rhetoric, say, in the Soviet Union, which I work on, was, of course, that this was, this was a society that would have no economic inequality, that, where they would be full employment. And Godsey argues that because there was essentially full employment and because women didn't have to worry about whether their sons or husbands um, you know, had enough work, they didn't have to worry about whether they themselves had enough work, this gave them more sort of time and space in their lives to find personal fulfillment uh, in other ways, be they sexual or uh, you know, through, through other means as well. It's a controversial argument, but I think what she was essentially trying to say is that you cannot disentangle attempt, you know, you cannot disentangle econ economic inequality from gendered inequality, and in sometimes attempts to um, address economic inequality and end it can also become uh, ways of addressing and ending gendered uh, forms of inequality. Um, and this is something that I think, as and you know, and this was actually a piece that, although she doesn't say it in there, I'm quite sure was precisely an attempt to intervene into these debates post-Trump about where do we see feminism in a politics that is you know, where, where we're trying to bring back an understanding of class and of economic inequality as driving uh, these populist forces in um, uh, in in Western Europe and in North America. Um, now, perhaps uh, it's to be expected, she, what part of the criticism she got on this piece was, uh, you know, people pointing out that women's lives in the Soviet Union often actually weren't that great, um, which is definitely true. I mean, I myself work, um, as Glenda mentioned, a bit on the history of prostitution, and in the early Soviet period, one of the things I write about is how, despite an official uh, um, line that prostitutes would not be arrested or uh, suppressed at all in, um, in the Soviet Union, in fact, by the late 1920s, uh, women who were suspected of selling sex were arrested and sent to labor camps and then to gulags and often died very terrible deaths. So, you know, absolutely, on the one hand, we can say that the Soviet Union is not not necessarily a flag bearer for, um, you know, a, a wonderful land of milk and honey for women. 
On the other hand, the kind of history of these, um, first of all, an attempt to think gendered and class depression together in the Soviet Union, and also the kind of fallout from that in the 90s and the early 2000s in Russia, can, I think, help us to, to think through some of these potentially thorny issues about uh, the intersection of gender and class. So one of the things that we've witnessed uh, in Russia uh, since the end of the Soviet Union um, was an attempt in the 90s and the early 2000s of a number of um, Western usually US and, and Western European-led um, women's NGOs um, to come into Russia and uh, found various programs to improve the life of women there. For example, famously, um, there was a, an attempt to set up a large number of rape crisis centers. Soviet Union did not have rape crisis centers, so uh, these Western feminist NGOs decided that Russia, post-Soviet Russia needed them also domestic violence shelters, uh, and also an attempt to kind of foster the emergence of a kind of Russian women's movement that would look like um, similar kinds of, of uh, structures in the United States or Western Europe. And this pretty much failed relatively miserably. I mean, there are still some uh, vestiges of this in Russia now, and there are still a small number of rape crisis centers, a small number of domestic violence shelters, but most of these women's NGOs kind of ended up pulling out, and also kind of declaring that Russia was a bit of a lost cause, because there are no feminists in Russia, um, women somehow seem not to care about their own oppression, and that therefore, you know, this was something um, that they could better, you know, spend their efforts elsewhere. Now, the problem, of course, um, is that when we try and import a kind of, and this also fits with what Glenda was saying about, about the many different types of global feminisms, if we try and import a particular kind of language of particularly, say, liberal feminism into an immediately post-socialist context, understandably there are going to be kind of translation issues. Um, and one of the biggest translation issues that scholars who've uh, looked at the 90s and the early 2000s in Russia and at some of these gender programs have found is precisely that those um, uh, liberal sort of feminist NGOs coming in were not talking about the massive um, uh, class inequality that was observant uh, everywhere, observable sorry, everywhere in the 90s and early 2000s and still is now arguably in Russia. So in the context of shock therapy, um, the, the gutting of the welfare state that had existed under the Soviet Union, uh, mass unemployment, a huge rise in the, um, oh, sorry, actually huge drop in the um, uh, life expectancy, especially of men in Russia. Um, this is not something that these NGOs had anything to say about necessarily because they were worried about setting up rape crisis centers. Um, but the problem with that was this was something that was very prominent and very to the forefront of the minds of, of women living through this time themselves. Um, so to the extent that they may have been turned off uh, by some of these groups. Uh, the argument is, uh, has been made that it's because they just were not speaking a language um, that was comprehensible to them. And if we look at Russia now and we see things like there was a recent um, law passed through the Duma that people may have read about that supposedly recriminalized, um, uh, um, uh, sorry, decriminalized uh, domestic violence. It actually didn't, it's complicated, but it, uh, there, there was certainly a, a law that, that made it. Um, uh, you know, punishments for domestic violence um, offences are much lighter, and that was opposed by a number of um, women's groups in Russia. We see the homosexual propaganda laws in Russia, and it looks like, you know, Russia is really this place where there's just absolutely no space whatsoever to talk about women's issues and to talk about feminism. 
On the other hand, increasingly, and to the chagrin of um, Putin, there is a growing anti-corruption movement um, which opposes Putin and united Russia, and um, that is sometimes, though not always, framed in terms of broader um, discussions about economic inequality. So the anti-corruption movement, to a certain extent, has also started to become a movement calling for much more attention to be placed on you know, the massive economic inequality in Russia at the moment, the terrible situation for very large numbers of unemployed or underemployed people, the terrible state of, um, of uh, you know, the health system, uh, the education system, etc. So I guess what I would sum up by saying is that um, you know, activists who are working uh, in, in these movements in Russia have a sort of history looking to the Soviet Union, have a kind of language um, to talk about how gender depression is fundamentally entangled with class oppression and how improving, in order to improve the lives of women, one of the things you need to do is deal with economic inequality um, more broadly. So it may be true uh, that, as some, as I said, commentators after the um, election of Trump uh, claimed, that in the United States or in Western Europe, uh, no one knows how to talk about gender and class together. But I would say that in other global contexts, that's not necessarily quite the same. And perhaps in this, um, if nothing else, we could learn a few things from the Russians. Thanks, Philippa. Thank you. Um, uh, now, Philippa and I have been talking about Russia quite a bit, and of course, the first thing that came to my mind was Pussy Riot, and um, and in the context of you know, if, is there a global kind of feminism, a shared language of feminism? And I, and I did remember last year, and it was before Trump uh, was elected, there was a House of Cards episode that had a kind of Putinist figure at a dinner, a dinner where um, a, pussy, a real Pussy Riot member arrived, and so there is a kind of a, a, a a global feminist language that's being spoken. I'm just wondering what kind it is. What do you think about that phenomenon in the Russian context? About the Pussy Riot phenomenon yeah. specifically? So Pussy Riot is kind of a tricky, um, a tricky one because actually one of the you know, commentators who say you know, there are no feminists in Russia and you know, women in Russia themselves are so brainwashed that they don't care about their own oppression, one of the things that they've pointed to is that in the wake of the Pussy Riot punk prayer at, um, uh, in Moscow in 2012 um, at the Church of Christ the Savior. When you uh, polled people in, say, the United States or uh, Western Europe and asked them what they thought of Pussy Riot, they said, oh, yeah, great, they shouldn't go to prison. What, you know, what's wrong with what they were doing? They were just exercising their right to free speech. If you poll people in, in Russia, overwhelmingly they said, yeah, that, that was kind of bad what they did. It was blasphemous, and, yeah, they probably should go to prison. Um, and so, of course, if, this, you know, if it's the majority of people in Russia saying this, this also means the majority of women saying this. Um, so what some people looking at those numbers have argued is that, again, the sort of language that Pussy Riot was speaking in that, in that punk prayer may have actually, um, perhaps ironically or paradoxically, been more um, comprehensible to a Western audience than necessarily to um, a Russian audience. Now, part of the complication with that also is that what Pussy Riot did was, you know, sort of, um, interpreted in the West as very explicitly both anti-Putin, which it was, um, and and sort of explicitly feminist. But Pussy Riot itself came out, as, as many people probably know, came out of a, a performance art group um, that you know th their key goal was sort of staging anti-Putinist. Um, uh, um, I don't want to say pranks because that sounds uh, you know derogatory, but sort of acts. Um, and uh, and they weren't you know feminism was in there, but it wasn't actually necessarily at the forefront. The fact that it was all women. Uh, in, in the, in the, who were arrested, of course, brought that out um, much more. But their own agenda was much more about Putin um, and about, again, about not just um, 
gender issues, but also economic inequality um, and other forms of, of, of oppression. Once they um, left, they were very much, or once that was taken out of Russia, it was very much interpreted as entirely feminist. Interestingly, now both the two sort of most prominent members, um, uh, Alyokhina and um, Tolokonikova, are both, both of them were in prison for two years, and both of them are very active now in prisoners' rights. Um, politics in Russia and in fact when they're interviewed they say that's more what they're now sort of more concerned about is the the prisoners rights movement um, rather than necessarily feminist politics and again I've seen that in commentary pieces framed as like oh no pussy riders turning away from feminism but again you know from the very beginning they saw those as uh, you know other questions of oppression as all all fundamentally kind of entangled. Interesting okay well that takes me to um, uh, Anna Hush our final uh, panelist because uh, I was very glad that Anna uh, agreed to come onto the panel because I feel that she opens up a whole other world of knowledge for me about um, cultures that uh, I only see from a distance. Anyway, can you talk a bit about your own work, what you've been doing and how this conversation and discussion fits there? Thank you, Anna. Yeah, definitely. So thank you for the invitation, Glenda. Um, And I'd also like to acknowledge that we're on um, sovereign Gadigal land tonight. Um, So yeah, I guess when I was thinking about what I would talk about tonight, I guess I wanted to reflect on um, the kind of predicament of young feminists and young women in the kind of global political context that we're seeing. Um, And I guess this comes out of my experience of organising young feminists here at uni um, and also visiting high schools and talking to 14 and 15 year olds about gender and feminism and consent, which has been quite an experience. Um, And I think what I've learned through that experience is that more young people than ever before are calling themselves feminists. Uh, When we go and talk to 15-year-olds, most of them know what feminism is. Most of them have come into contact with it. Um, Some of them, particularly the girls, tend to identify as a feminist, but they generally don't have a particularly, um, particularly deep understanding of what that means. They can give us a kind of broad definition of feminism's about equality between men and women, Um, but it kind of doesn't go much further than that. So... I think that shows that the kind of feminism that a lot of young people are exposed to is by and large a very liberal feminism. So it's a feminism that tends to focus on individual women's achievements or success, uh, as in Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, as in Hillary Clinton, I'm with her. Um, It doesn't really focus on the broader problems that women uh, as as a group face, and particularly the women that are not right on the top, that aren't CEOs or politicians. Uh, it's, a, it's about formal, not substantive equality. So it's a feminism that calls more for sort of rights and, and recognition um, and representation in institutions and in the media rather than redistribution of, of wealth and, and resources. Uh, and it also tends to be a very sort of consumerist feminism. So it's a feminism that a lot of young women, I think, see as a, uh, a lifestyle or as a sort of personal brand rather than a political practice or as, as a movement that they're part of. Um, before the Women's March in Washington, there was, I saw a piece published called 15 Statement Pieces, Perfect for the Women's March, Even If You Can't Attend, which had a $550 pantsuit so you could channel your inner Hillary and a $760 denim jacket that said Girl Gang on the back. Um, and I, th- I thought it was a joke, but it's, it wasn't a joke. Um, And I think this kind of consumerist feminism can be very easily incorporated or assimilated into the kind of neoliberal political structure without demanding any kind of significant structural change to the political and economic order. 
Um, Alberto Toscano recently described it as socially conscious neoliberalism, which I think is perfect. Um, and as Glenda said, the best kind of critique it can, it can come up with of, say, Trump is that you're orange, you're gross, you lost the vote. Um, but I think the other, I think that's, that's one challenge for young feminists is, is challenging the kind of hegemony of liberal feminism. But I think another big challenge that young feminists face is the kind of backlash that we're seeing that's really risen over the past couple of years um, alongside these kind of neo-reactionary populist right-wing agendas, um, which perceive any feminist gains as kind of political correctness gone mad. Uh, and that's something we've seen here on campus. So we've seen men's rights activists uh, protesting, screening the red pill. I don't know if any of you have seen it. Um, we've seen people walking around wearing Make America Great Again caps. One of our union student union candidates ran on Make USID Great Again, wearing her little red cap. Um, and last year we saw the Muslim student prayer room vandalised five times in three months with kind of Islamophobic graffiti left behind. So I think... This shows that young people are very susceptible to these kind of reactionary politics of right-wing populism. And I think that comes, for a lot of young people, from a place of deep disillusionment and resentment with the kind of economic uh, challenges that young people are facing that have been shifted onto young people from uh, a system that's very much run by baby boomers. Uh, young people face immense difficulties uh, accessing housing. The Sydney housing market is ridiculous. Um, there's a massive rates of underemployment. And when young people do get employment, it's generally quite precarious. It's underpaid. Penalty rates are being cut. Uh, the government's new internship scheme pays young people $4 an hour um, for their internships. And the cost of education is, is rising as the government slowly but surely privatises and deregulates it. So I think this has motivated um, a shift to the right for a lot of young people, but it, in the same way, it can also motivate a shift towards the left. So as we've seen in the UK, where there was a huge surge of young people turning out to enrol and to vote for Jeremy Corbyn, young people do get motivated when they're presented with some kind of viable alternative to the status quo. Um, and I think this is my source of hope, is these kind of grassroots movements um, all around the world that are able to speak to the kind of predicaments of, of young people um, and address the, the structural problems that young people are facing. And I think that in building these kind of um, broad left, broad-based political movements, um, feminism is really an integral part of this project. We really need to integrate these kind of demands of gender justice um, into these political movements. And... I think what we've seen is that liberal feminism and neoliberalism is unable to provide that kind of viable alternative that people can turn towards as a source of hope. Um, but a feminism that's able to address these kind of structural problems um, is really galvanising for young people. So, and I mean, there are lots of issues in Australia that, that um, this kind of movement could address. Um, there was reporting last week that that surgical abortion is still illegal in Queensland and people are having to fly interstate and pay up to $9,000 to access an abortion. Um, the cost of education is something that young people can, can directly relate to. Um, and, of course, access to education is really critical to closing that sort of gender pay gap. Um, and I think also looking at the, the rates of unemployment for young people and how this impacts young women in particular and people of colour in particular... Um, and also the issue of violence against women, I think, has been something that young people have, have really rallied around. 
So I think, as Philip has said, there's, there's a lot of opportunity um, in the present moment to think about the ways in which we can look at uh, class and gender not as separate issues or issues that can just be sort of added together, but as these kind of co-constitutive phenomena um, that we really need to address uh, at one and the same time together. And I think once we start to address these problems, we can start to really speak to young people about the predicaments that they're in. Um, and that provides a, a viable alternative to challenge right-wing populism and to channel this kind of um, resentment and disillusionment into a really productive strategy. And, and I think the strategy, as Laura said, also needs to address um, global concerns in a way that is anti-imperialist, in a way that's anti-colonial, um, as Laura said, feminism, uh, feminists have a responsibility to address race as it's such a salient feature of our social world um, if we're going to avoid some of the very exclusionary dynamics that, um, that feminism has presented in the past. Thanks, Anna. So um, you can clap if you want. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a bit more about um, the work you're doing on identity politics for your thesis because, I mean, that's one of the issues that Philippa raised, you know, the extent to which there's been an identification of uh, by populist um, support, supporters of populism. Can you call them that? Because they wouldn't call themselves. But people that we identify with populism uh, identif uh, have sort of targeted identity politics as sort of the enemy that, uh, that they... Uh, their politics is against. You know, so what are you doing with identity politics? So does it fit into this scenario, helps us understand in some way what's going on? Well, when I was sort of thinking about what I'd say tonight, I was trying to look at the relationship between feminism and populism. And I mean, I think firstly we need to define populism. Um, the way I see it, populism is this kind of divisive political strategy that constructs some kind of notion of, of the people, um, and the people are seen as sort of legitimate, authentic, originary, vis-a-vis -vis this kind of um, imagined other, whether that's, you know, uh, the global elite or the fake news media or immigrants, um, and that other needs to be kind of expelled or, or destroyed through some kind of um, political process. And populism, of course, claims to represent this, the people, whoever that may be, um, in a way that no other sort of movement or ideology is able to. And I think that fem there's, there might be sort of an analogy with, um, with, part, with parts of the history of the feminist movement where feminism has claimed to represent women as a kind of, as a kind of unity. Um, but as Laura said, that's that's repeatedly been exposed as a very kind of exclusionary ideal that when we talk about all women or the global sisterhood, we really only, only end up talking about um, wealthy, privileged, straight, white women. Um, so I think, you know, and I think as um, multiple panellists have talked about, uh, the insights of intersectionality are really, really crucial here and I think that they need to be um, built into our kind of response to... to the rise of right-wing populism, um, yeah. So, um, and just to follow up, I guess, uh, on a point that seems to me relevant to what each of you have said in some way, I mean, is there such a thing as populist feminism then that, um, in a way, is what you were identifying when you were talking about um, sort of neoliberal feminism, but you could also argue it's a kind of populist feminism in the sense that the shallowness of it, um, or the pussy right, I mean, sometimes talking to you about pussy right, I get a sense you think of it as a as having some of those features of populism mm -hmm. 
the, the reductiveness, if you like. Um, and I don't know how, quite how that complicates our, you know, the general equation, but that if, if we think of populism and feminism as not necessarily, uh, you know, binary opposites, and that there is um, then this other kind of space, is it a useful concept? I know it's used in more positive ways, but... Yeah, well, I think part, part of the strategy of populism is that it's anti-pluralist. So um, it doesn't admit that there are kind of any legitimate alternative perspectives. Um, it's very anti-democratic in that it, um, it presents itself as the only sort of yeah, viable representative political strategy. And then it, it uses those claims to kind of um, undermine a lot of the really important kind of democratic mechanisms that, that we have, that we hold so dear. So I think... I don't think a lot of, um, I don't think, yeah, I don't think that feminism in general follows those kind of trends. I think it's quite hard to square, say, like, liberal feminism with populism that's decidedly anti-liberal. Um, and I definitely don't think that it's, it's, a, it's a good strategy for feminists to take if we want to hold on to some kind of democratic um, grassroots structure to feminism as a movement. Mm -hmm. Any of you want to answer that or any other point that we've raised so far? On, well, oh, yeah. I can jump in on, on that question. I mean, I think we do see, um, you know, while on the one hand, um, uh, you know, it's, it's absolutely true that that in theory, feminism and populism are not um, are not categories that should go together, and certainly not liberal feminism, as as Anna pointed out. Um, on the other hand, sometimes we see strange bedfellows, right? So, uh, you know, you raised uh, the issue of Islamophobia, Glenda and, and, and Pauline, um, and, you know, an, a different group from the region that I work on, not Pussy Riot, but is Femen, which many people may have heard of before, famous for their topless protests. Um, and they started out as a group, they're a Ukrainian group, they started as a Ukrainian group, and they started out actually, interestingly, as a group protesting... Um, uh, sex tourism and trafficking in and from um, Ukraine definitely identify as feminist. Um, they protest around you know other issues to do with women's rights and also um, LGBT rights as well. But they've increasingly in the past couple of years become more and more openly um, Islamophobic. They always said that their opposition, they were opposed to religion and originally it was very much targeted at, at, at the church um, in Ukraine. Uh, but they've now made connections with all sorts of groups in France and Germany who are openly Islamophobic and who we might associate precisely with some of those right-wing populist groups that you raised. Um, so you know, there are certain kind of uh, this, this history of kind of imperialist feminism, one might say, or, or a kind of anti-pluralistic feminism is definitely there. Um, and we see it in, in groups like Femin and in their interactions with, with right-wing populists. But there's also, I think, uh, I was thinking about the case in Cologne, you know, uh, where there were the attacks on women in, in public mm -hmm. spaces. And I think there's a, a very self-conscious and aware kind of feminism that is struggling with how to... How to um, uh, you know, engage difference in that context, right, mm -hmm. without falling into Islamophobic um, uh, uh, positions, but nevertheless take a, a critical position vis-a-vis -vis the treatment of women um, and different views about women's place in society and politics. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the complexity of it is, I think, really important to kind of untangle. Laura, did you want to say something? Uh, on the question of populist feminism, I guess, I would say uh, areas of overlap perhaps. I mean I think there's definitely anti-elite feminism, right? Mm. And I think I mean 
there's definitely anti-establishment feminism. So rather than seeing populist feminism as a kind of as a thing that emerges, uh, I think it's possible to trace the roots of political movements to see where the where the mobilisation is happening, sort of where the um, connections are being forged. And I think that there are feminist movements, particularly um, if we look again at the US example, feminist movements that are mobilised actually against Clinton uh, in the US election because of the uh, perception that she was so firmly uh, in and of and represented the establishment and an establishment that was broken and militarist and responsible for um, hundreds of thousands of deaths um, in the Middle East in particular. So I think that there are connections that I would draw, but I think for all of the very sensible and persuasive reasons that, that Anna drew out, um, I, I wouldn't characterize those necessarily as populist feminisms. If I can make yeah. one more point, um, I wanted to pick up on something that you said, Anna, about the um, the struggle to articulate a challenge to liberal feminism. And it's not just young women that are struggling <laughs> with that. Um, I think one of the things that I found so profoundly difficult uh, in my work on, on women, peace and security, which spends a lot of time and energy focusing on the importance of including women in peace and security governance. And that means having women at the table, right? Whatever that means. And that's fairly loosely interpreted in a number of contexts. Um, there's no way around that individualization, right? Because having a woman at the table means an individual woman. And it's, it then becomes, you know, essentially somebody said in the run-up to the Global Report in 2015 that it has now just become, you know, drag a, a warm female body into the room, essentially. <laughs> um, and I think that we need to do better, Right, at, at joining gender and class and critiques of white privilege um, in order to support kind of transgenerational feminist efforts to challenge neoliberalism because neoliberalism is seductive and those who make it feel really good right? because they have privilege and they have power and a position from which to speak and they feel like they earned it, of course, because that's what neoliberalism tells us. So it's hard to mobilise a movement in that context but I think that we definitely we need to tell younger feminists that they're not alone in struggling <laughs> with that. Okay, well, maybe it's time now for you to tell us uh, what you think or ask us questions. Meredith has the microphone that's going around. If you have a question you'd like to ask any of the panellists. Hi, my name is Sarah. I'm an um, alumnus of Sydney Uni. My question is following on uh, your last comment on populist feminism or kind of the differences within feminism that we're seeing at the moment. I listened to a great podcast by Stuff Mum Never Told You. I don't know if you guys have listened to that, but it's kind of quite commercial, young um, podcast that talks a lot about different feminism, uh, feminist issues. And the podcast was talking about Taylor Swift and fem feminism. And in this, in this age where it's so difficult to mobilise young people and kind of have that viable alternative, and we have these privileged white females like Taylor Swift or um, Emma Watson and, of course, Beyonce, who everyone loves, um, what role do you see them playing in influencing uh, young feminists in that kind of really shallow level of, oh, yes, it's just about equality um, or individualism? Uh, 
and what the potential could be in terms of educating not just young women but also um, men about what we need to be doing in kind of mobilising a wider movement. What do you think? Uh, Anna, do you want to take one? Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think these, these figures have a really pivotal role to play and they can do it in a, in a good way or in a bad way. Um, there's that Beyonce song where she literally just inserts a bit of a Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie um, TED Talk, which is like a definition of feminism. It's really not a bad one. Um, and I think, you know, they can be really effective vehicles for, um, for spreading feminism. But as you said, too often it just becomes this kind of brand that's sold to young people um, that they, you know, feel good about identifying with but don't really take up in any kind of substantive way um, in their life. So... I think, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Um, it can be really powerful, but it also can be pretty detrimental to, to the feminist cause, I think. And that's, and that's always going to be the case when you've got, um, you know, a political movement like feminism being adopted by this kind of corporate capitalist media. It's always going to get watered down. Um, it's always going to get kind of warped in the process. So, yeah, it's a tricky one. <laughs> Can I come in on that? Yeah, sure. And I think there are multiple feminisms, right? I mean, mm. we know that. And I, mean, I nearly fell off my chair when I saw Theresa May, who's the British Prime Minister, wearing a T-shirt saying, <laughs> this is what a feminist looks like, because it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and my feminism meant that I had to take to the Twitter and denounce that. <laughs> but other people might not feel the same, you know? And, and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> While we wait for you to think of your questions, I, I'm struck by, um, I know we've been talking about, you know, just how deep the, the, the uh, challenge goes, but I'm struck by, you know, the extent to which there are some basic kind of liberal feminist rights that are being taken away, that, you know, that the, this, even liberal feminism doesn't have it all its own way at the moment, because those reproductive rights that, you know, we're always fairly, you know, high on the <coughs> list of uh, liberal feminist demands, if you like. Um, voting rights in America, although that's not a gender-specific issue, of course, it's much more race-based. Uh, equal pay questions that were, that, you know, could be seen as, um, you know, taken up in other contexts as well, but we're also part of a liberal feminist agenda. I'm just wondering if we're being a bit hard on... I feel like we're being a bit hard on liberal feminism in this context, <laughs> in the context of, of the kinds of challenges that populism poses. Because there are fundamental challenges to the way in which we think of democracy, right? Because so much of populism, you could identify it as anti-democratic because there's, only, there isn't, there's no acceptance of pluralism or, or of, of the need to discuss these kinds of policy issues. And, uh, and so much of it relies on fairly conventional versions of um, you know the, of the nuclear family, etc., which you maybe want to argue that is a liberal feminist position. Well, I'm not sure. You know, historically, I mean, do you have any views on? Do we want to be more accepting of a liberal feminist position? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, one could one would, could respond to that by saying, uh, you know, it's in part a question of strategy, right? So. Say you have a, a certain liberal feminist agenda that's very much about rights and voting rights and reproductive rights, equal pay, etc. Um, I think what you know the, the past two years, but actually if you look at Eastern Europe and you're looking at Poland or Hungary, you could say the past ten years have demonstrated is that precisely this this rise you know this rise of the populist right um, 
you know, is, is taking those rights away, basically. So we see this with Trump. Um, say you take something like Poland, where um, uh, the current government is, you know, very, is, a, is a populist right-wing government and is very actively attacking women's reproductive rights. I'm not sure if people saw, but they, they attempted to make abortion much more difficult to obtain. And there were, there were massive protests, and the protests won, which was great. But, um, uh, you know, so, so if you're thinking then about how do you, how do you, uh, you know, deal with this right-wing populism, and if you take the argument that liberal feminism is not a good strategy for dealing with that right-wing populism because it's not attacking um, the kinds of causes of it, which maybe are more to do with how gender intersects with economic inequality and with race, then you would argue then that liberal feminism is not currently a useful tool for achieving liberal feminist ends, maybe, mm. as opposed to arguing that those ends are somehow not desirable or, um, or as you say, you know, suggesting that everything's fine in the land of kind of reproductive rights and voting rights and things like that. Yeah, I wonder if that's one of... I mean, I was thinking... Uh, I have to say I didn't follow the responses to the Burke incident in the Senate that closely, but whether there was much of a discussion about the, you know, the call to feminists to somehow support Pauline... You know, Pauline Hanson's call to feminists to support her in that context, whether that um, actually generated much discussion about what feminism should stand for in the Australian context. I can't remember, do you remember? I don't remember hearing it. Julia? Oh, there's someone up there with it. You go first, then we'll come down to Julia. Yeah. I'm not going to answer. No, you've got to, you can ask your own question. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to answer the Pauline Hanson question because I can't bear to think about it. But, uh, That's fair. It's one of the interesting things in all of your presentations is that we focus on liberal feminism, and I agree that it's the dominant sort of capture of young feminism, and I've been looking at fourth wave feminism, if you like, which is this sort of internet-based notion. But one of the things I think that's really important to consider and bring back into the debate is the notion of power. And none of you mentioned power in the discussion. And in a sense, um, until feminism re-engages with who's holding power and really critiques the introduction of the notion of gender and the dissipation of strategic structural feminism. I mean, you know, socialists, of course, are structural feminists, but we don't really kind of bring back the debate about who, who keeps reasserting power to reduce the rights and equality of women. And particularly from a global perspective, I think um, feminism largely failed to uh, equalise women in the world because really, many women still suffer the same kind of subjugation and lack of freedoms that they have for a long time, since colonisation at least. So I'm really interested in your um, contemplation of power in relations because even though feminism might be popular amongst young people and they're identifying, I often don't hear them really engaging with <clears throat> What does gaining equality mean in relation to gender power relations? And, you know, domestic violence, despite its popular sort of engagement, has not decreased. Criminal statistics show uh, a, a steady increase in domestic violence in Australia. And deaths of women is another sort of symbol of that. So we're not really winning anything, any gains, through the sort of commonness of the idea of feminism. So I'm really interested in how brave feminists can be to really tackle what is a continuing uh, oppression through gender power relationships and whether 
the use of gender really dissipated the women's movement in a way that disallowed that strategic sort of goal setting. Um, Good question. Okay, does anyone want to take that up while the mic moves around? It's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> um, So, I, I'm inclined, actually, to lay this at the door of liberal feminism as well. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not wearing a sign. I'm just, um, <laughs> because I think that there have been some wins. Um, and I think it is largely the ability to individualise those wins and to say, well, look, these particular women who have particular kinds of privilege, but we're not going to talk about that, they're doing much better. Therefore, you know, we are progressing towards gender equality. Um, and, you know, everything else will happen. Like, it's a version of the kind of pernicious trickle-down economics that they tried to sell us in the 1970s, right? That... Um, you know, the benefits of liberal feminism will trickle down to the rest of you eventually. You just need to kind of stay alive for long enough to enjoy it. Um, but you're absolutely right. It is about power. And I think, though, that I, I guess I want both and, right, which is sort of annoying of me, because I want to be able to say absolutely women should have reproductive rights and women should have voting rights and, you know, women should not... Um, be subjected to a gender pay gap and if women want to organise around women's rights then that's still an important and viable political project but I also want to pay attention to the ways in which gendered power operates to position people in different subjects not necessarily on the basis of their anatomy actually that gendered power isn't immaterial it uh, accrues to bodies in particular ways that materialise power in unexpected ways that I think a kind of one-to-one -one correlation between sex and gender doesn't actually allow us to get at. So I think, yes, we need to pay attention to power. I think that despite having kind of professed a multiplicity of feminisms, I think a feminism that doesn't talk about power is lacking right, and actually unable to kind of... Um, defend itself as a viable political project. Um, I think you're right that we don't talk about power enough and the different kinds of intersections of power, right, and structures of power that are shifting and complex and, importantly, produce wins for certain people that then co-opt and make complicit those people in maintaining the structures of power that got them to the top, right? And that's... You know, we, we know that. I think we're smart enough um, to, to be able to point to it, but... Uh, it's difficult all the time to kind of hold a mirror sometimes. I think. Yep. That's all. Right. all right, take another question up there. Yeah. Um, well, with feminism. No, we can't hear you. Hang on. Don't. You hear me now? Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, I'm not that familiar with feminism, but kind of came here to learn more. Um, you mentioned before that like, uh, it's a uh, popular movement at the moment. Sorry for my accent. How you will solve a popular perception of feminism? Yeah, yeah, got it. How do, how, how, do we, how do we solve the popular perception of feminism? So we've been talking about one popular perception, which is the one where it's 
popular, right? <laughs> uh, but you're talking about another one, are you? Where it's not so popular. Which popular perception? The one where... Uh, which one? Sorry. No, I say they're popular. Unpopular. unpopular. Oh, unpopular. Yeah. Oh, unpopular. unpopular. Isn't that what you do? <laughs> <laughs> Anna will solve the unpopular perception of feminism. I, yeah, I'll try. Um, so, so something that we do in our workshops at high schools talking about feminism is try to break down some of the stereotypes about feminists that are just so, so prevalent but so tired, you know, that all feminists are lesbians, that we hate men, that you know, feminists are just hairy old hags or whatever. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. I don't think young people are even particularly attached to those stereotypes anymore. I think that the kind of feminism that they're seeing um, doesn't really align with those kind of... I think they're just a bit outdated. Um, and I think that, yeah, the kind, of, the kind of feminism that's being spread in the media is one, as I said before, that's really sellable to young people. It's really attractive and appealing. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, again, liberal feminism, sorry, but I think it, um, it appeals to young people in a way that's based on their image and based on their consumption habits. Um, but I think a feminism that's able to appeal to the kind of um, conditions and predicaments that young people face will be much more effective at, um, at becoming a, a genuinely popular and successful movement um, and one that's actually able to make social change. So we've got Julia and then one in here. Okay, so this is working, yes. Um, I wanted to actually just raise a question about activism and feminism and whether um, there is a way that feminists can still be active by being silent in some way. You know, do you always have to be an activist to be a feminist? But is that really necessary? Is it also really necessary now to be, you know, to make uh, women and feminists feel that they should be active because of the problems of popularism, you know, the sorts of things that you've been talking about. Can I, yeah, Lord, can Lord. I go for that? That's a really interesting question, right? And it's the, the concept of activism is one that I have a really uneasy relationship with because I think in a really narrow, um, kind of shallow depiction, it's quite... Ableist. It assumes an able body to be out in the street, and like a lot of people don't have that for whatever reason. Um, a lot of people don't have the skin privilege to be able to organise in public without, you know, bringing down the wrath of the police state or whatever. Right? Um, I mean, one of the things that one of the very kind of striking images from the um, Charlottesville situation was the um, Lightfoot Militia, which was a bunch of white blokes in camo carrying semi-automatic machine guns. And everyone, like it was tweeted a bazillion times with, you know, this is what the, the, the Nazis looked like. It actually wasn't, but that's not the point. The point was that I'm pretty sure if they weren't white blokes in camo, they wouldn't have gotten as far as they did, right? So I think we need to be careful about expectations upon bodies to occupy public space because not all bodies are treated equally in public space um, and and we need to be careful about exhaustion right honestly um, I went to a conference in in the US uh, not long after the um, inauguration of Trump and all of my American like there was so much weeping in the corridor I can't even tell you all of my American colleagues were so tired because they'd been comforting their students they'd been out you know um, comforting their communities because of the 
rolling shit show that was about to rain down upon them with the Trump administration. And, and they were exhausted. And one of the things that we talked about a lot in that conference, there were lots of impromptu kind of sharing spaces, as you might imagine, but about it doesn't always have to be your turn. Right? It doesn't always have to be you that does it. That's why collective action is important. Right? That's why we move as a movement and we find solidarity with people that feel the way that we do. Because some days you have to spend the day on the sofa under a blanket eating M&Ms. I'm sorry, but you do. <laughs> some days it can't be you. Some days it can't be me. Right? But sometimes it can and that's okay too. So I, 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 I hear you, like I feel those pressures of activism and I think we need to be mindful to articulate that yes, it's important to show up when you can but it doesn't always have to be you. Okay, we have a question here. Okay, can you? Okay, um, my question is pretty much on the same page with, with the, the previous one about activism, and I'm just thinking. Um, it, this is. Um, it reminds me of something like the UN's um, "He He for Her," although it can be problematic on many aspects um, in itself. But my my confusion lies in the, the issue with reaching out to the other side, and. As um, one of our panelists mentioned today, so new liberalism is very seductive, and I think populism is also very seductive. And sometimes I just kept thinking we need to reach out to people on the other side, and it's incredibly difficult to do that. And I have to confess, when I see the fire in their eyes, the Trump supporters, and you know, people chanting um, um, on campus saying. No means yes, yes means I know. And then you see them. I, th I feel like a part of me inside just dies. I can't even open up to talk to them because um, their vibe, <laughs> their existence is so confronting to me. Someone who's, who's been on the receiving end of um, gender violence. And, and I feel that is just difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so my question is... Uh, um, combating populist opinion, reach out to them and really, really communicate because we need them to be on our side eventually to achieve some really big change. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, what do you think about that? I think a number of you put up the, pointed out the importance of harnessing the, 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 the source of the um, discontent that feeds or is, you know, finds populism seductive. So you may want to address that question in that context again. Yeah, yeah. sure. I mean, I think that's, that's such an important point that, um, you know, there needs to be some kind of attempt to, um, to broaden the, the basis of support for these movements because otherwise we're stuck in this kind of left-wing bubble um, that's, yeah, that's unable to actually tackle or, like, have a proper conversation with the kind of discourses that we're seeing on the right. Um, I guess it's a question, and I mean, like, allyship is such a fraught term at the moment, but I think it's a question about who, who does that work, um, and I don't think that it, it should be um, up to, for example, people who've experienced gendered violence to go and speak to men's rights activists or, or Trump supporters and try and change their mind. Um, and I think it's, you know, and I think there also is merit to recognising when people's minds are just not going to change. Um, and when it's not really worth... I mean, when they're not willing to... And I think this is, a, like, a 
function of populism, not being willing to engage in a kind of reasonable conversation, um, but just kind of yelling past each other. Um, I think, and, and as Laura said before, sometimes we just need to sort of preserve our energies and, and not fight every battle. And we have a question just there. Yeah. Based on intersectional, uh, intersectional feminism this evening, I've heard the phrase white feminist be used in a critique of the exclusivity of the feminist movement. Uh, to what extent is feminism the movement of white cisgender women? When will the rights of trans women and especially trans women of colour be centred in the movement? Does anyone know the answer? <laughs> Maybe not to the question of when. <laughs> okay. Um, so just to recapitulate your question, you're asking, you know, when, when might we see a feminism or how might we see a feminism that centres more the rights of trans women and trans women of colour especially? So I think this is a very important question that's also, you know, obviously very topical in a lot of activist circles. Um, uh, I work in the UK, as was mentioned, and there there's been a lot of discussion about no platforming of speakers at universities who were seen as espousing a, an, an, an anti-trans feminism. Um, and I think that there is a lot of discussion about, um, at least at the university level, about the importance of um, building a much more, you know, first of all, building, you know, allies and also building a much more robust feminism that is uh, that includes trans feminism as part of it um, so I don't have an answer to the, to the when um, but my understanding is that it's it's something that is increasingly at least in the university that I work at, at uh, increasingly part of the, the discussion that people are having on campus and the discussion that people are having when they organize you know similar events to this one about how to incorporate that perspective very much as well can I Laura on that for me, the answer is now, right? There are trans women, there are trans feminists of color who center trans feminists in their feminism, right? It goes to the question of what kind of feminism do you support? And like, I know that it's tired to say, well, my feminism does this and it's better than your feminism, which doesn't do that, which is therefore worse. But I think the only way that feminist movements will center those concerns is if we as feminists start doing that and start criticizing feminisms that don't do that as problematic, right? Anna, do you want to say anything? Um, I, it just makes me think of these, these workshops that we do in high schools and the amount of young people who know what the word transgender means, who know what the word cisgender means is really, really impressive. Um, so I think that with the visibility of um, trans feminists and trans feminists of colour in particular, I think it is kind of a, a tipping point. And obviously feminism as a whole is, is not doing well enough at um, prioritising the voices of trans women and those experiences. But I think it's coming. <laughs> I, I hope so, at least. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sitting here, yeah, I'm in a story and like Philippa, and um, I have this thing about how we don't sleep very well. Uh, in the current climate because we always can think of um, lots of examples from the past about when things didn't go very well. Um, I'm, and now I'm trying to stay, I'm trying to stay positive because part of me is exhausted by all the exam examples that are accumulating in my <laughs> mind. Um, uh, but it is true that there's a lot that's different about the current situation, partly because of the, the consciousness about the uh, uh, um, different kinds of communities that are incorporated or can be incorporated under a feminist umbrella um, 
and with the feminist cause. But also, I think if we go back to the example of the march in January, the different kinds of signs went up. And it's not just that you know um, that we might find a range of causes ready to kind of bring feminism on side, but the feminism itself is this umbrella for so many different related anti-populist causes, if you like, including you know uh, causes the cause against climate change denial. Um, uh, more general, you know, the, the consciousness of race, the consciousness of other kinds of difference, um, the awareness in many contexts of the, the the fallacy of going down the Islamophobic path and of, of seeing this kind of reductive notion of where the answer to the problem of women's oppression might lie. So, you know, that's my hopeful note to you all. Uh, Laura's writing a book at the moment, which I'll recommend. It's not out yet, but there's a whole chapter at the beginning that I've been reading. It's all about hope. Um, so I'm taking some sustenance from that. And uh, so go out with hope. Try not to read too many history books. <laughs> <laughs> we can't whitewash too much of the past, but there is a future. Let's hope the future's not just about populism, but it's also about feminism. Thank you all, and thanks to the panel. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.